This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. Hey there, Insecurities listeners. A quick programming note before we get started today. On the next couple episodes, we're going to be temporarily turning away from our usual focus on securities regulation, enforcement, and accounting hot topics to focus instead on finding your path in the legal or accounting world or somewhere else entirely. We're going to be talking about mental health and wellness and some of the things we can do as professionals to find more fulfilling careers. These episodes might sound a little bit different, but we think you're going to love them. And to kick us off today, we're lucky to have on the show Alex Sue, who, at least in the big law world, is kind of TikTok famous. I mean, at Legal Tech Bro has 74,000 followers and more than 3.7 million likes on TikTok. Those are those are real numbers, folks. More importantly, perhaps, Alex is a believer that we should all seek to find our own path to success and satisfaction. It doesn't have to be the the well-worn path of those who came before us. In a recent installment of his off-the-record newsletter, Alex wrote, I mean, if you want a steady and comfortable living, you don't need to do anything crazy or do anything different than you're told in law school. On the other hand, if you want to do something extraordinary, you will have to inevitably do something uncomfortable and scary. And how that plays into the rest of your story won't be clear to you at the time. It's good advice. And we're going to talk to Alex today about his career journey so far and why it sometimes pays off to go off the beaten path. Join us today on Insecurities. Hello and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments, with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. It's good to be with you, Chris. You, you didn't jump in in my intro, but like, how are you stacking up against Alex's 74,000 followers? I think even if you had every kind of TikTok enabled accountant all following the same account, we probably would not total 74,000 <laughs> in total. So uh, it's great to, to have somebody on here. And, and we're really excited to talk to Alex about kind of everything from the legal side of his life at an earlier time, all the way through to, to the fun and the work that he does today. I think that's an important an important mix here. But for those who are not yet part of the 75,000 or so that will be after this episode of <laughs> At Legal Tech Bro, uh, a little bit on Mr. Alex Sue. Alex is a former lawyer who is now the head of community development at Ironclad, a legal tech company focusing on contracts technology. Prior to that, and once upon a time, Alex was an associate at Sullivan and Cromwell and had also clerked for a federal judge. Many of our listeners will know Alex through his TikTok handle, at Legal Tech Bro, or have seen his viral TikTok video. Yes, viral, I'll tell you, legal technology and legal videos on LinkedIn, on Twitter, on Instagram, uh, you know, being repurposed throughout there. For those of you who don't know, Alex also pens a newsletter on Substack called Off the Record that traces his journey through law and legal tech. Alex, we are so happy to have you. Welcome to Insecurities. Chris and Kurt, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. (laughs) 
I would caution everybody, if you want to pause and go check out Legal Tech Bro on TikTok right now, please do. Those, the memes, the videos, the the quotes, I think they're great. Situational for those of us who suffer through the long hours of client work or, or review notes from partners uh, about the work that we've done. Alex really hits a, a keynote here. But we want to hear more about, Alex, your story. But let's hear a little bit more than just what I talked about with with your your background at Sullivan and Cromwell and, and your law career. Uh, give us give us kind of the Alex Sue take on on your career. Yeah, so I went to law school because I wanted to be a trial lawyer, and somewhere along the way, someone told me, "Hey, you need to go join a big firm, join the litigation department. You need to clerk for a judge." And I got into my head that I wanted to be an AUSA, a federal prosecutor. So I followed the standard path, but but somewhere along the way, I thought, okay, well. I don't actually think this is what I really want. And there were a few different epiphanies along the way, partly because I think I felt like I was a fish out of water in, in, a, law, in a law firm. So I thought to kind of like what I really wanted to do, I really wanted to persuade, I wanted to be in court. So I actually left Sullivan and Cromwell to join a smaller plaintiff's firm. And that's where I learned about the, the incredible power of technology because you know at our firm, we were going up against large firms uh, but with much smaller teams, and and we were winning routinely. So that was the first time I think in my I got in my head that technology can make a difference. You know that job didn't work out. You know a, a lot of what I talk about today, you know, wasn't the result of a strategic decision. It was just me kind of messing up and pivoting and adapting, messing up, pivoting and adapting. And so you know after after that job didn't work out, I even tried opening up my own solo practice, which also didn't work out. And so by 2016, this was six years out of law school. I knew that I needed to do something different. I knew that technology was a growing space and could have an impact on the legal industry. And because I had done all these different, had all these experiences, for example, working on a political campaign and making cold calls and door knocking, I knew that I could do sales. So I decided to make the jump to legal tech to do sales. And I started off in the e-discovery space, worked my way up, did well because I think it was suited to my, to my strengths. And then I added on this other layer that was very unique, which is I started creating content on social media, first on LinkedIn, then it spread out to, to TikTok, Twitter, and Instagram. And over time, the, the content that I made started to grow, go viral. I, I created a following. And the next thing I knew, I was having all these conversations on social media with all sorts of people in the legal community online. And then Ironclad, a, a very successful contract technology company, came, came knocking and said, Hey, we, we really like what you're doing. Let's talk about potentially you joining the team. And, and so today I'm at Ironclad. I head up community development, which is really engagement with the legal community, both our customer community, but also the broader legal community. So I speak at law schools. I do podcasts like these. I put out very silly memes and TikToks on social media. So, so I do a lot of different things, but it certainly wasn't, it didn't start out this way. I, I always wanted to be a, a traditional lawyer and, and somehow I found myself in this position. Yeah, it's a it's a cool story. You know, I've read most, if not all, of the newsletters you've put on on your Substack. They're great. You know, a couple of the themes that emerge, at least for me. I mean, one is you're you're talking about it right now. Is this sort of trial and error, right? Like it, this thing didn't work, so I tried that, and that didn't work, so I pivoted. Right? There's a an element of being nimble or flexible, right? That I think has allowed you to kind of find your way. The other thing, I think maybe this is the biggest theme. That, that you talk about and that you write about is this idea that of not being afraid to go off the beaten path, right? Like everybody can kind of see that path out there, at least for lawyers, like go to good law school, do good clerkship, go to big, you know, and and that's awesome. Some, some people love it, right? But I think one of your messages is that you can find 
maybe more interesting, more fulfilling careers. You can achieve great success if you're willing to sort of take that take that leap of faith. You know, you write a lot about some of the people that have done that successfully. Belinda Johnson, the COO of Airbnb, Tom Goldstein, the founder of SCOTUS blog, Larry Sensini, who founded Wilson Sensini. You know, interestingly, that turned into big law, but right, that's not how it started. Uh, I, right. I love I love something you wrote about Joe Tsai, a co-founder of Alibaba on Twitter. You, you said, uh, or this is how you described him, quote, a big law associate decided to quit his prestigious high-paying job to go in-house and then left that to join a startup with no revenue or website. Pause for dramatic effect. Today, that associate is a billionaire who owns the Brooklyn Nets. Like not bad, right? So, so you, you draw you draw inspiration from a bunch of different people. So, I mean, tell us tell us some of those stories or what you learned from them. Yeah, I, I used to read obsessively about biographies because I thought that they would provide a roadmap to doing well and being successful. So, you know, even in law school, I was reading a lot of these stories, and and you know, I think that one common theme that I saw was that. Yes, you can be successful in a traditional way, like following the career ladder. But a lot of the people who are most inspiring or who seem to do the most rewarding, high-impact work, and certainly some of the most wealthy people, they all did something very weird early on in their careers. And I'll, I'll use the Joe Tsai example because I just thought of it. I, I, you know, and I, I had followed his story for a while. He was an associate at Solomon and Cromwell. He might have been a third year. I think he was a tax associate. What prompted him to leave and do something quote unquote weird was that he went into a client meeting and uh, he was with a senior partner and, and, you know, somebody who's very experienced and the client on the other end was this like young guy who was his age and, and he was calling the shots to the Sullivan and Cromwell lawyers. And then, so Joe thought like, he's like, why am I doing this thing? And I have to wait a long, a long time to become successful and do interesting things. Meanwhile, Somebody in the business world, in the finance world, in the investing world can, can really do something really interesting and great uh, at such a young age. I think that that's going to get me there faster. And so, you know, from the outside, it may seem crazy for someone to walk away from a lucrative big law associate job, but I think he wanted something more. And you see this theme again and again, like Belinda Johnson, who sits on the board of, of Airbnb and PayPal today. And she used to be the COO of Airbnb. Her first leap was, I think she was like five years out of law school. She had worked at three different big law firms and was like, you know, kind of switching jobs a lot. And then she was like, I'm, I'm done with this. I want something more. I'm going to go look into this guy who's at my gym. He's a serial entrepreneur. I think he's going to go places. Uh, that guy ended up being Mark Cuban. Um, and so she joined his startup and that startup did well, got acquired by Yahoo. And it, it just like, it just led to all sorts of great things. So I think in the beginning, if you think about it, like it's hard to explain these major pivots and career moves to other people, but but every single one of these folks saw something that other people didn't see. I guess I got to find a better gym, Alex, because I haven't seen Mark Cuban <laughs> at, at my gym yet. So uh, we'll be looking for those connections. Kurt, I don't know. Do, do, you, do you throw some weights around with any heavy hitters? <laughs> no, no, I don't. I've never met a Mark Cuban at the gym. Uh, we met Mark Cuban at SEC Speaks That's right. about 10 years ago, That's right. he was uh, there. but, ne- but never, at, never at the gym. Yeah, and I think, Alex, it's almost easy to talk about the, the Josai story or, or the Belinda Johnson story because we've seen the result. Uh, but that when you're sitting in that chair and, and thinking about taking that leap, there might be nothing scarier, right, in your career. You're looking at rent payments, uh, you know, buying a house, you know, the things that you're thinking about for your career with a good paying job at a big law or even a big accounting firm. 
you know, I think that you've done a great job in your messaging uh, on the Substack as well as through TikTok about what you what we're calling Alex Sue's rules for how to go off the beaten path. And and I'd like you to kind of walk through those three elements for us and talk a bit about them. Yeah, I I'm happy to because I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this because I also think about what happened to me. Like I I never expected to be where I am with this what I call a unicorn job that I find very rewarding that pays well that has a lot of growth potential. And I do think that when I share this, a lot of the reactions I get is, well, that's just survivorship bias. You're only looking at the people who, for whom things worked out. There's a lot of people who try things and, and things don't work out. And I have a few thoughts on that that I can share. But to the extent that there are themes or formulas or a pattern, what I've found is that unicorn job to get the high impact, unusual, rewarding role, you've got to do a few things. And, and the first one is you've got to ignore conventional wisdom. And second, and then you got to do something really weird or kind of weird at least. And then third, you have to run towards the front, what I call the frontier. And, you know, if you look at each of these three elements, they are common in all of these stories. And I think that when people talk about survivorship bias, I think it's because we are only focused on the most famous stories, like, you know, the, you know, the, the billionaire stories or the, you know, NBA team owner stories, the, the CEO, the COO of Airbnb stories. But a lot of people out there have really rewarding careers that don't get that same coverage. And I see, I've seen them kind of in my path and I've seen them just sharing their stories on LinkedIn and, and other social media talking about how they ended up where they are. So, so I do think that there's something to this, the, the, the story, but really it is coming down to like doing something different and then running towards the frontier. Yeah. I mean, let's unpack those a little bit because I think that they're important points. They all have their own kind of different wisdom or sub points about them. So let's just we'll kind of take them in order. The first one is ignore conventional wisdom. And and you've said that's important because everyone has their own unique personality. They have their own individualized strengths and weaknesses. I know you recently wrote a newsletter talking all about trying to figure out what your weaknesses are. And at least the way I read it is not because they are necessarily limiters, but because sometimes they may point you to your strengths, right? Like the flip side of your weakness may be a strength. I think that's been been your experience in your career. So tell us why it's important to ignore conventional wisdom. Yeah, I think that conventional wisdom is always grounded in some truth that has already passed. So for example, the world is constantly changing. And so the rules that made sense years ago don't no longer make sense today. When I was growing up, the teachers always said, you need to memorize these, mem- these multiplication tables because you're never going to always have a, a calculator with you when you're at the grocery store. And we know how silly that is today. That's but right. like, you know, we all have our iPhones, right, uh, in, our, in our pockets. But when you look beyond that, it's like you were also told not to play video games, right? But because it's a waste of time and you should be focused on your studies to, to do well at school and, and get a good job. But today, there are people playing video games and making millions of dollars. I mean, if you look at kind of what YouTube and the internet has enabled in terms of career paths, it looks nothing like what it was when we were younger. And I think that's really tr- particularly true in the legal industry because, you know, we live on precedent, on the past, we're a conservative industry. And so you're going to always hear this advice that comes from the more senior members of that industry, right? The partners, the, the people who practice law for many years. And the advice that they give is not always necessarily in line with what's happening in the world today. And, you know, I think that some of the, the wisdom is, 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 you know, is, is useful and valuable, but, but if you really do want to ride the wave, you have to kind of ignore it for a minute. 
And so for me, I was told, like, if you want to be a successful lawyer, you've got to follow X, Y, and Z. You've got to go to a big firm and do this and that. I quickly learned that wasn't for me because when I went into the firm, I felt like all of my weaknesses, like the things I was doing, all of my weaknesses magnified my problems. Like I'm not an attention to detail kind of guy. Like I, I actually miss a lot of things. My wife always makes fun of me about it. She's like, how come you didn't do, you know, how come you missed this thing or that thing? It's, it's just kind of who I am. And you can imagine as an associate, as a young associate, that could be a problem because you're <laughs> sending emails with typos, which I've done before, plenty of times before. I would print out emails. I, to I've done a lot this week, Alex, so today, and not yeah. just before. <laughs> yeah, no, so it becomes a struggle and you develop these coping mechanisms. But then, you know, what I discovered, because between my clerkship and when I went back to big law, I decided to volunteer on a political campaign. And that was where I discovered that I was unusually good at cold calling, like on the phone. Not something I ever expected and very surprising to me and, and a lot of my friends. But when I unpacked it, I realized like the ability to cold call was inversely correlated with my ability to, you know, have strong attention to detail. Like I would see a document and there would be typos on it and I would read it or whatever. And I would, I would say, oh, this looks fine to me. Like, I would not notice the mistakes, but in the same way, which, which is a liability, but in the same way, when you're making a cold call, you know, people rejecting you or being a little bit mean to you, the, the, in the tonality of their voice being annoyed, like I didn't see that either. I just kept on, you know, <laughs> pushing forward. So, so it became an asset. And so that, you know, when I eventually made the gentle legal tech, I decided to do sales because I knew that, you know, the weaknesses that, that I struggled with suddenly became assets. And I did not want to be a lawyer working at a legal tech company because I knew that that would be more similar to what I was bad at. I wanted to be in sales. I wanted to do something where I could actually leverage my strengths. And I was betting that, that it would pay off in the long run. I, I like that kind of flip side of what's perceived as a weakness and, and how kind of directly that correlated to, to that experience, Alex. That's a great example. So, I mean, ignore conventional wisdom is a great title, but I think it's more consider and acknowledge that wisdom and know where it fits for you and where it might not, right? Because mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. started your career following that wisdom and then yeah. and then took a different path. So I don't know, Kurt, if, if this podcast would be supportive of every attorney just throwing out the book uh, and moving on uh, you know, without getting that foundation. But I think it's a good message to, to consider. Yeah, well, it's not for everybody, right? I mean, I think that's, that's, exactly. that's part of the message yep. too. Some, I, some people are very, very happy on that path. There's, there's stability and there's security. Mm -hmm. And as you know, Alex has mentioned, you can make a good living. But maybe folks want something more. And so that's when, you know, we, we lean on Alex to kind of learn a little bit about how to get there. That's right. I also think that, you know, ignoring conventional wisdom doesn't have to be as drastic uh, as what I'm describing. Yeah. Like my story is about leaving the practice of law. But if you look at, for example, the story that I shared about Larry Sincini, you know, he ignored conventional wisdom too, because when he graduated from law school, all his friends went to the big firms. He went to a small, you know, sleepy town, quote unquote, called Palo Alto. And I think joined it was like a Wait, where's that? I, I don't know if I ever heard of that town. <laughs> I think, I think something going on it. out there? Yeah. I'm, to I am told that it's, you know, just outside of this other major city, San Francisco. Oh, yes. Yeah, right. but, 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 you know, he, he decided to do this and he ignored the, the wisdom that was given to him at the time, which is, you know, to join a large firm in New York, uh, you know, LA, you know, some of the, you know, big cities and like, like SF. And he joined this practice, but you know, part of it was that he he saw some potential in the startup space and the technology space. So ignoring conventional wisdom doesn't mean like throwing out every single thing. I, I think it means like, and you know, we all have this. You know, we see things. We see this conventional wisdom in our world. Whether you're a you know securities litigator, 
whether you're a lawyer, whether you're a doctor, whether you're, you know, anything else, there are these rules that, you know, that, that no longer apply. And I think we all got to apply some judgment and think, okay, does it, does it make sense still from a first principles perspective? And where can I go with this? When I uh, was in, was at, S- at Sullivan and Cromwell, I heard this story about Raj Cohen, who was, I think the, the, the leading banking lawyer at the time still might be, you know, I, I don't really follow that anymore, but you know, I always thought that kind of day one, but I later learned from, from, from some other folks at the firm that, you know, when he started off, he started off in a practice area, you know, and doing some things like takeover law. I'm not sure if it was takeover law or M&A or, or something that was not really that hot back in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Then something changed, you know, you know, the, the environment changed and, and, and then his practice area became extremely valuable. So, so you almost have to ride those tailwinds. You really do have to do something a little bit different because if it's conventional wisdom, everybody's crowding into it and trying to do the same thing. And there's a lot of competition. Yeah, I think that's a great way to think about as we move on to that kind of second rule for going off the beaten path, Alex. Not only considering and ignoring that conventional wisdom, doing something and doing something kind of weird. And I know all of those accountants out there listening, you know, are just kind of staring off into space like, what do you mean do something weird? We don't do that. Debits are on the left. Credits are on the right. End of story. But Alex, talk to us about what you mean when you say <laughs> do something kind of weird and help educate my accounting brethren uh, on what they should think about. Yeah, I, I, I'd say if you're gonna if you're gonna tell people what you're doing, and people kind of raise their eyebrow at you, you might be on the right track. I think one of the things that a lot of you know high achieving professionals fall into is you know feeling the desire to tell people or let other people feel like they're doing the right thing or headed in the right direction. There are shorthand ways of saying and describing this, right? I'm going to be an accountant. I'm going to go be a lawyer. You know, I'm going to go to law school, whatever. There are shorthand ways to, to let people know that you're headed in the right direction. But the problem with that approach is that it means everyone else is doing the same thing. And when a space gets crowded, it means that it's not necessarily always a meritocracy. And the example I always use is like making partner at a, at a big law firm. I had this view, and of course, not everyone may have this view necessarily, but I feel like there's more to making big a partner at a big law firm from what I, what I see from my friends and colleagues than just the work itself. You've got to pick the right practice area. Like you've got to time it right in terms of demand from clients because you can't make a million litigation partners if the work isn't there. Um, and second, you need some mentors or sponsors to make sure that you know you take on the right work to build out a portfolio of skills that that make it you know, make it so you can get make you can make partner. So I think that because it's so crowded, all of these other things come into play. Whereas if you kind of do something weird and you're the only person doing it, what really matters is the, the work itself. Are you like having an impact or are you not having an impact? You know, I see that a lot in, in tech in tech where I am because a lot of things are still um, shifting very quickly. And you know, one of the examples that I use, I always use Belinda Johnson's example, is that she got into this highly amorphous, ambiguous regulatory environment where you know, a technology company was still trying to operate within a, a regulatory a legal regime that, that hadn't adapted to it yet. You know, there was not a long line of people who were doing that type of work when she got into it, uh, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. In fact, Yahoo was on the cutting edge of that. And so because she was one of the very few people who developed that skill set, she was so well positioned when Airbnb came around and just needed someone with her skill set. You know, she didn't have to you know, work her way through a system, through an, a hierarchy to, to, to get that type of exposure to that work. And so I think that's an example of, of doing something kind of weird where, where you know, we might see the it makes sense looking backwards. But when, when she was going through that process, you know, it, it probably wasn't what 
what many other people were doing. Yeah, that that's interesting. It, how things that may seem weird when you sort of set off on that path later don't seem weird at all, right? Now maybe you're getting roped into the convention. You, I mean, we kind of see that in in the growth of some of the you know the digital assets in the crypto space. Mm-hmm, still mm-hmm. pretty new, right? Yeah. Some of those still feel like alternate paths for people. But you can imagine a world fifteen, maybe ten, five at the rate things change <laughs> years from now, where some of that stuff just seems really commonplace, right? Like you're on the you're on the traditional kind of path to crypto success, which mm-hmm. you know was weird when people started doing it. Maybe, but I think you know that kind of gets to to your third point, which is about I think you call it running toward the frontier, but it's it's about not waiting your turn or, or maybe skipping ahead in the line. It's that that Joe Sai experience you were talking about before, where he's sitting across the table from the client who is his age and thinking like, do I want to be that guy? Or do I want to be the gray hair sitting next to me? So, I mean, tell us more about running towards the frontier. Like, what's the concept that you're trying to capture with that with that advice? Yeah, I think running towards the frontier really means thinking about where the major changes are happening in your industry, and then going towards the edge where maybe people haven't heard of it, and maybe where people have heard of it but aren't really going there yet. You know, I've always been a fan of Quinn Emanuel because I feel like the firm has always done that, done something off the beaten path. And, you know, I remember when I was in law school, all the firms had like people wearing suits and stuff. But like, I think, you know, Quinn Emanuel was always like the the Hawaiian shirts and the, the casual dress. And I feel like, you know, there's a culture of running towards the frontier, doing something different. And, and I think firms generally uh, don't do this, but the firms that do run towards the frontier, like Quinn Emanuel, and also like Wilson Sonsini, you know, back in the day, I think when I wrote about Larry Sonsini, Lots of his competitor firms were focused on serving institutional uh, investors. So like the mm-hmm. funds that invested into startups. And Larry Sensini had the insight to to go where things were kind of still shifting. Like we had, we had talked about like the startup scene getting bigger and bigger. He decided to, to focus on the startups themselves instead of the institutional uh, investors. And, and that was a very controversial decision at the time. But it was also, he moved where where things were shifting. There was no established it was an established practice area. And so by doing that, he got to ride the wave. And, you know, because there were no other firms really focused on this. All the firms wanted the immediate legal fees that come from representing a very large client. But he decided, he, he saw the growth potential of, of startups. And then, you know, mm-hmm. he just achieved like almost like a, a unique monopoly on that space. Now, you know, that's changed over time. There are plenty of other firms that are that are serving startups. But, but I think the lesson there is that by going off the beaten path and, and, and going after something that was constantly changing that was kind of new, he was able to, to really build out a reputation and a practice area for a small family law firm in a sleepy town. So, you know, there are stories like that, you know, certainly uh, among plenty of lawyers who, who went into some unique space that was still evolving. And then once, once that, that, that area grew and, and exploded in size, the, the doors almost kind of closed. So, and, and they were well positioned to, to, to thrive and, and exploit it. Yeah. I, I was going to ask, I mean, when you kind of lay it out there, you know, here are the three steps. Here are the things you you need to do, right? It sounds it sounds kind of easy, and this isn't. I'm not even thinking about like survivorship bias. I'm just thinking in terms of like as soon as we finish recording today, I'm going to go get out my notepad and I'm going to think like where is the frontier and how do I get? But I mean, what is it that drives people to do this? How do they find it? I mean, in in some way they must be going towards things that interest them or that they're naturally good at, right? So h- how does it even happen? 
I, I think that's actually right. People are gra- gravitate towards things that they they like to do. You know, I always liked, liked working with people, so I gravitated away from heavy legal research and towards working with people. I think, and this is something I'm trying to figure out too, because I, I have law students and, and lawyers and even partners at big law firms asking me like, hey, what should I do? How do I make the actual pivot? I think it's actually kind of hard the more you have to lose. Uh, I was very lucky, uh, unlucky in some ways, but you can say lucky that some some bad things happened to me. I, I encountered some setbacks early on, which forced me to kind of decide like, okay, what am I doing next? And And I think without that, it's hard to make those major pivots unless something something happens. But but I think it's also a positive because, you know, when you think about it, any risk that you take, if there's a setback, that may prompt you and motivate you to, to try something different and move towards a different direction. Like you really don't know how the story will play out. And the earlier you are in your, you are in your career, the more time there is to kind of navigate yourself in the, into the right place. Like when I left the traditional practice of law, I saw myself as going into legal tech and sales and, and growing and developing a career there. And so that was kind of a calculated bet. What I didn't expect, and this is, I think, a big part of the story, and this is true in all of the stories that I've described, is that we don't know what we don't know. Like I went into legal tech sales. I never realized that social media would play such a, a large role. Like, and it was like almost like an unknown unknown. And, it, and so when, like, like the story I always tell about how I grew my platform was that I didn't have a huge platform before the pandemic. I never imagined that the pandemic would happen. I never imagined everyone would move to social media, especially lawyers uh, on, on onto social media during the pandemic. But because I was in legal tech sales, I was kind of in this space where no one was really inhabiting. And I saw the, the little challenges here and there. And I saw the value of, of social media. I, I started just posting one post a day. The, the pandemic happens. And then suddenly I go viral again and again. And that leads me to create more content and develop this expertise on how to make funny funny memes and, and funny videos. <laughs> and so, and I've achieved almost like a personal monopoly in this very niche area. And so I never imagined that would happen. And I think when you look at all these other stories, yes, a lot of this was engineered. A lot of times people engineered their careers to go where their opportunity was, but the real steps up happen in ways that no one ever imagined and may not necessarily be repeatable. So that's my long-winded way of saying that you could plan all you want, but a lot of times the biggest accelerants are broader factors that no one can predict. Alex, everything we're talking about here reminds me of, of Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers. And, and I think that the, the thing that is the through line between all three of your steps is really having the intrinsic motivation personally to do these things, right? I, I'm sure you're not asking everyone to just start running towards a frontier. Go run, everyone, and see which frontier is right. You got to identify kind of like Malcolm Gladwell talks about Bill Gates was spending late nights in the, the computer lab that was kind of this weird thing in, in the Pacific Northwest that nobody really knew where it was going to go to. And I'm sure that even if computing didn't take the avenue that it has in the 40 years mm-hmm. since, Bill Gates still would have been happy doing that, right? Same with the Beatles in Europe and kind of playing those clubs for seven, eight hours a day. They were doing it because they loved it. They didn't say, we need to be the biggest band in the history of music. So this is our training ground. They were doing it for their own enjoyment or their own fulfillment. And and I know I see that in, in the way that you produce your content. And in the advice you give to these attorneys and folks ask, seeking you out is to find that, that connection point where you're doing something that you enjoy, that kind of weird thing or that kind of weird pivot, uh, but having that intrinsic motivation to, to drive you to, to do it regardless of fame and wealth and success, you, you get that enjoyment along the way. I love that you brought up outliers because I think that I might have borrowed or stole some ideas from, mm-hmm. from Malcolm Gladwell because I read that book during <laughs> law school and I was like, 
it kind of blew my mind. And I, I had the same, I walked away with the same insight that you did. And what I love about it is that there is a story in Outliers, if you remember, about Joe Flom uh, yep. from Skadden. And, you know, what I remember from it most, and, you know, we all remember different parts of different stories, but, but the, the story of, of Joe Flom is that, you know, he graduated and, and couldn't find a job and ended up in this, uh, yet, yet again, a small firm called Skadden, a high-risk venture. Uh, it was a tiny firm. He, didn't go, he couldn't get a job at the big firms. And then he ended up becoming this huge expert in, like, you know, hostile takeovers when it became... Like right before it became super, super uh, valuable and became super, super common. What I like most about that story, uh, that, that part that I remember the most is that, you know, Joe Flum, obviously a very talented uh, lawyer, he couldn't get a job when he graduated from Harvard Law. And he was on the law review. He wasn't like slouch, but like he struggled. I mean, could you imagine what he was thinking when he was like graduating from Harvard Law as a member of the law review, couldn't get a job at any firm and had to do something kind of crazy? And I think that goes back to what I was saying earlier in that yeah. sometimes you need some really bad stuff to happen and you kind of like, it shakes you and you're like, oh, I got to do this other thing. Hmm. And, and that's why I think a lot of the, the challenge that a lot of successful lawyers have is that they, they have huge opportunity costs. You're kind of in this place where you're doing really well. And if you walk away from it, you're going to lose a lot. And so that's why you need something big to happen to shake you up. That's what kind of what happened to me. Like I, yeah, I, I like changed jobs a few times, you know, deliberately, but I also like opened a firm that failed. Like I thought that was going to be my thing. And when it smacked me in the face, I was like, oh my God, I need to get another win. What am I going to do? I didn't think about it too much. I was like, I need a paycheck. I need to make money again. Mm-hmm. So, so, so I feel like that, that is a, that is a common theme. I mean, I'm glad you brought up that book because I, I love that book. No, and I think one of the things I took away, Alex, when you were talking about your background earlier in this recording, you kept saying the phrase, and that didn't really work out. And it's like, we're talking to this guy who's a viral legal influencer on TikTok who has all of these, it didn't really work out in his career prior to this. And now, as I read about on Twitter, Alex, you have signed with a literary agent and will be publishing a book uh, about the unexpected turns in your path uh, and how that's providing some interesting material. Obviously, many of the things you've written on Substack as well. Talk to us about the book deal, the massive, you know, seven, eight digit advance you're being sent. Uh, what should we expect, Alex, in, in, in this next chapter for you? Uh, well, thank you. I, that's very kind of you to say, I don't have a book deal yet. I do have a literary agent, Excellent. which I'm told is a big deal. I, so I'll tell you how it happened and, and how it plays into all of this. Like, I had always wanted to write a book. This is like before law school. This is when I was like in college. And the funny thing is when I was in college, I had a, I had a blog. I would do some of the same things that I'm doing now on social media, but in a very small way within my college community. And so I enjoyed writing and I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to write a book someday. And so I looked into it and then they told me you can't get a book deal unless you have a platform, unless you have followers, if you have like an email list, if you have like a presence. And I was like, oh my God, I don't have that. I just want to write a book and sell it. So I guess I'm not going to write a book. Right. And this is when I was like, you know, in my early twenties, you know, I'm in my late thirties now. So this was many years ago. So I kind of forgot about it. And I always kind of like in the back of my mind, I'm like, I'll do it someday. I'll do it someday. And then, of course, I went through what I went through. I, I, my career shifted. I went to law school, and then I found myself on social media. And then during the pandemic, I, my follower account exploded, and I, I suddenly had this audience. And so about a month or two ago, I, I posted on Twitter. I'm like, I remember thinking, like, maybe I should write a book. Maybe I should go back to that idea. And so I wrote on Twitter, anybody have any, any, any advice for me? I'm a first-time author, might want to write a book. And I got some good comments, but then one of the comments was literally from someone who was a literary agent. She said, I have a lot of thoughts. I'm a follower, a big fan. Let's hop on a call. 
So we hopped on the call and one thing led to another and she's, you know, we ended up deciding to work together. And, and the funny thing is, you know, when I made the jump to legal tech, I never imagined that this would lead to, to an opportunity like this, but that goes, plays back into like how I think it all works that sometimes when you go into a frontier space, if you do well and you, and you rise fast, you have these unexpected opportunities. Like I never expected this would be part of my like story. I never expected mm -hmm. that a book would be in, in the works, but, but it turns out uh, because of that audience that I developed, I now have the opportunity to potentially uh, write a book. And now, now I don't know if I'll get a book deal. I'm optimistic, but it's, it's never guaranteed, but the confidence and faith of my literary agent, uh, who's going to help me craft this, this proposal and, you know, help me uh, think through some of the ideas of how to write it. That's going to give me a huge advantage. And again, that's something that I never would have had, had I stayed on the, the traditional path. I mean, one of the things that, that we've heard a lot today is about, <clears throat> again, I don't want to say trial and error, but it's it's about being nimble. It's about going in directions you never could have anticipated. I mean, I think you said earlier, like that that quantum leap is often at a time or in a direction you didn't expect. So I'm going to ask you an impossible question. What what does the future look like for Alex Sue? I mean, can, can you even know? Are you just open to to whatever path makes sense or opens up in front of you. So I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. I'm very excited about Ironclad and the space that we inhabit. I do think that digital contracting is it, there's going to be huge transformation in this in this space. It's it, it is my frontier, and and so I'm going to stick around and and continue to see this through. Uh, when I first went into tech, I, I started off in e-discovery, but now I moved to contracts, and so uh, there are things that are happening in our world that that I think Ironclad is at the forefront of. So so that's on the on the on my day job side. Other than that, I try to keep things, you know, I run, I, I think through things, you know, six months at a time, maybe 12 months at a time. I do think that the most important thing for me is that I'm doing what I think I, I'm good at and, I, and, and what I enjoy because I think longevity matters. I want to be doing some of the same stuff I am now that I really like doing now, 10, 20, 30 years from now. And so on the side, I, I keep on producing content. I started the Substack probably about four or five months ago. It's relatively new. But, but, you know, that's led to a couple of interesting things. And, you know, I think the book is, is something that I'm thinking about a lot these days because, you know, I'm going to be writing about some of the themes that we're talking about here today. It's something I, I it means a lot to me. It's like, it's something I went through and I, I want to share with the world. So there's a lot of different things, but I'm still going to stay in legal tech and, and continue making content, make people laugh and hopefully share some stories that they never, uh, they never knew about and, and hopefully guide them as we kind of move forward in the changing world. For those of you listening who have not yet signed up for Alex Sue's newsletter, you can check it out at itsoffthericord.substack.com. Uh, a lot of great content there, some of which we've talked about, and, and I'm sure more to come. Alex is great. Uh, but let's hone in on where your virality, I think, really got started, uh, and that is on the much maligned and misunderstood platform of TikTok. So if anyone on, on listening to this podcast is you know over the age of, say, I don't know, Kurt, what, 42, 43? It's, we, I'm glad you gonna, let me slide under your. I your, didn't want to point any fingers on, on age, yeah. but I appreciate Alex is in his late 30s, like me. And then Kurt, we won't put you in any buckets. Uh -huh. TikTok is that viral video platform that is very popular with you know dance crazes and the Applebee's song and all these other kind of ideas along the way. But Alex, how did you get started in utilizing TikTok and thinking about that for creating content? And and what has the early response been like for you? Yeah, so. The response has been pretty receptive. You know, you can find me at Legal Tech Bro on TikTok. 
I, I made a couple of videos and I was going to post them on LinkedIn for professional reasons. They were all like law jokes that I thought would help with business development. And I went viral on TikTok unexpectedly. So I still don't really understand it, uh, even though I, I am viral on it. I don't understand what makes something viral or not. But I have found that by making light and jokes of uh, certain things that, that take place in the legal profession, people like that, even people who are not in, in the legal industry. Mm -hmm. So I think there is this irreverent attitude in, 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 in among the people on TikTok, and I'm going to keep on leaning into that and seeing where that takes. Uh, it always sticks with me, and, and I don't remember the exact video, but that kind of the messaging around when a senior leader at a firm, and, and obviously I'm in an accounting firm, so it's a little different, uh, but you know, says, hey, I need this on my desk by the end of business. And then that little quotation you had at the end, like, so I can read it next Tuesday, you know, six days from now, and then maybe get back to you about it a week later. Like, that's a daily experience for Kurt. I'm sure for you and me and our clients as well, right? That happens to everybody. But that just really struck a chord with me that had me in stitches uh, laughing here at my desk. So you're really speaking to a lot of the things that we deal with, with, with that lighthearted and a little bit cynical attitude, Alex. Yeah, I, I, I get a lot of my ideas from people who who comment and, and like mm. kind of reach out to me like, hey, this thing happens a lot. <laughs> uh, you know, that one in particular seems to be a very common experience. So, yeah. and, and not just with law firms and the senior leaders, like there's a lot of jokes about how like clients are the same way too. Like, mm -hmm. and I guess any of us, I've been guilty of this too with some the, the lawyers I've worked with. Like when I hired a lawyer, I was I, I was like, oh my God, I'm doing the same thing. I'm like, I need <laughs> you are the problem. But then I'm like, oh, something came up. So we can meet in two weeks. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's just a funny thing that happens across yeah. the board for, for yeah, a lot of people. Mm -hmm. yeah, one of the other things that, that I think you've had a few videos about that they seem to be wildly popular. I think maybe it's because like you're hitting a couple different constituencies, but it's this sort of juxtaposition of like the in-house legal team and the business yeah. folks or the sales <laughs> folks. Like the, the business folks are always just like, bah, whatever, just like get it done. Or, you know, they go to legal and say, give me your list of laws, right? But it's like hilarious <laughs> because you're you're sort of capturing these these ingrained cultural differences. But I mean, mm -hmm. like, why do you think that resonates with people? It resonates because it's the lived experience of anybody who works in-house. Like during my, my, my sales career, I would speak with like dozens of in-house lawyers every week. It was just like just from sales calls to just various conversations. And they would tell me these things. They would tell, I was like, oh, you must have it great because you're in-house and you're probably like barking orders at your outside counsel. They're like, no, actually, let me tell you how it is. Like the business <laughs> treats us like terrible. And I'm like, really, tell me more about that. And so I saw this pattern and heard a lot about it. And in particular, the, the big beef is with the sales team because yeah. the sales team is always wanting to close the deal quickly. And, and who cares what's on the contract? Whereas legal's like, hey, you got to slow down. We got to figure out what are the risks are. So that like, I, I bet I could probably make the same video making fun of the tension between sales and in-house legal, like with no creativity, but the same old joke. And it would be popular just because it's such... It's, it's part of the lived experience of all the in-house lawyers. And there's lots of little things like that too. Like, give me your list of laws. Like, like, like business people asking their in-house lawyers, give me the list of laws. Like stuff like that, that, that apparently is a very common experience. I like that. Well, I know, Alex, alongside of the content you've created, you've, you've collaborated with a lot of great, you know, kind of folks in developing some of these issues. What's been your favorite kind of collab as you put this content out there? I think that I love collaborating and I think that I love working with cre other creators because I feel like there's not a lot of people who are doing what I'm doing and they, um, we have shared experiences too. And, and it's different mediums like TikTok. We've talked a lot about TikTok, but you know, I have a lot of friends who are on, on LinkedIn, um, and, and on Twitter. I, I think I made a video with 
Karen Vladek of on, on Twitter uh, a couple of a couple of uh, TikTok videos together making fun of the 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 life of a, an associate at a law firm. You know, she you know she is. I think she's moved on from her firm since then. But at the time, she was a partner at a firm, so I thought it was really funny that I could do that with a with a partner at a at, you know at a law firm. You know, making joke and she was making fun of herself. But you know, she's been great to work with. I've worked with also Matt Margolis, who is also active on on Twitter, but also you know LinkedIn and TikTok. You know, he's now in in a legal tech role, very similar to mine. He started off in house working as an in house lawyer and a law firm before that. So I love working with people. I think that the people I like working with are people who who put out like a little bit of irreverent humor and talk about the legal industry and kind of the the real deal. I also you know personally enjoy lots of jokes about being a parent. You know, there's a there's a subset of of Twitter voices on in, in legal that talk about like make jokes about like having a young child or having young children. Personally, I enjoy that because I'm, I'm with a three year old. Like my life is chaos at home, so <laughs> I always enjoy content like that. <laughs> Yeah, my my algo has been spitting a lot of that at, at me lately too. Uh, <laughs> my, my, my kids are seven and nine, so yeah, I, I see all of the videos. And I mean, look, they make you laugh. They they do. Sometimes you're laughing at, at yourself, which is I think a really healthy thing to do, right? Definitely. Like you've got to be able to zoom out and just be like, oh my god, some something about my life is ridiculous, and that's okay. Like I'm not the only one experiencing it. Yeah, yeah, and I think that when you make make jokes about something. You can get away with saying a lot. I I have found, and you know whether it's memes or TikToks or, or just a, a, a silly one-liner. Um, if you make it funny, I think people almost like let you in a bit. Whereas like if you go out there with guns blazing and you know you're preachy about it, like I don't know, it's not received the same way. Like if you make a meme and joke about it, it's almost like people will will listen to you more. So I've been trying to do that. I'm not very funny in person. You know, I I think that. I think, I think our listeners would disagree. I mean, I think, like, <laughs> yeah, your, co- your co-hosts may disagree with that too. <laughs> it's, it's funny because like, I, I think that the jokes also are, are, are specific to our world where, you know, my wife will always watch, ask to watch my TikToks and I'll show them to her. And she's like, I don't get it. Like, do, do your, do your online friends think this is funny? Like, I don't get it. <laughs> so, so like, you know, it's like, I think it's very, you know, contextual, but, but I think that I've tried to be deliberate about being funny about some of the issues I think that are really important because it, it will spread the message and, and hopefully um, it'll get through to my audience. I mean, I got to say that it, it's getting through to a lot of people. A lot of times on insecurities, you know, folks will come to us or their their media and PR teams will come to us and say like, we'd like to come on the show. And we we always welcome those reach outs. Every, you know, please feel free. Send Shameless us a plug, note. go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Reach out. <laughs> but, but Alex, the, po- the point is like, Alex, we wanted to come to you. And when That's we right. pitched this at, at our own internal production meeting, I think I brought it up first. I was like, hey guys, so I know that I'm the only lawyer on the phone, but there's this guy out there. His name is Alex Sue. And everyone was like, oh yeah, I love that guy. Yeah. I was like, all right. Let's- <laughs> So your message is getting through, man. Amen. Oh, I love that. Thank you. That's that's very kind of, of them to say. I also don't know who's watching and listening out there. You know, the internet is kind of a weird place like that. You you, you don't. It's like you're in a room and you're talking to people and you see who's listening. Mm-hmm. I've been surprised and, and and about who's listening, and I'm honored that you all would think of me to invite me. Like this is super cool. I can't believe I'm here. We're so glad you did, Alex. As we wrap up our time together, any last thoughts to our listeners out there? I mean, we've hit on the big three, right, of ignoring conventional wisdom, 
doing something kind of weird and and running towards that frontier. But any other words of, of wisdom you want to share with our listeners? Yeah, if you're in a spot where you feel like something's missing from your career or job, like you don't want to make a, a huge change, I think that's fine. As long as you keep on thinking through and, you know, what you want from your career, like what you might be good at. And, you know, what I did, you know, was was I experimented with like volunteering on a political campaign or like having a, an anonymous blog on the side, like doing little things that are that are not really big gambles will give you the insights when when it's time to make move down the road. So, you know, keep trying to figure it out if you haven't already. And and yeah, like uh, hopefully people will, will, will be inspired to, to try something different. It's great advice. Thank you for that. And thank you so much for accepting our invitation to come on the show. It's been it's been a real pleasure and we're glad to have you. Yeah, thank you for thank you for having me. I really appreciate you taking time. And, and honestly, like I I never imagined I could be speaking to to people like you. So I feel like that this podcast is like such a great podcast. I've seen the other episodes. You know, it's, an, it's a real honor. Thank you. Well, for those of you who have not yet multitasked and clicked over to Twitter or Instagram or TikTok, you can find Alex Sue at Legal Tech Bro on TikTok or at Hey It's Alex Sue on Instagram and on Twitter. Alex, thanks so much for joining us and, and, and taking your time out of your day to, to talk with us. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. And a special thanks to our guest, Alex Sue of Ironclad. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at CPA. And I'm at enforce underscore update. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI. PLI.